Welcome everyone to episode 127, Light Stem Cell Control. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Thanks so much for tuning in. How's it going over there, Dalen? I'm hanging in keeks. You know, it's like fully fall. <laughs> thanks. I mean, not Thanksgiving. Halloween coming up. Are you going to dress up? No. I, I mean, this year I'm trying to craft the costumes as we speak. I know the child is asking for costumes. He's changed his mind already. Even though we were preparing one costume, the indecision has begun. <laughs> Yikes. I feel you. Like, I feel you. My problem is the younger one only wants to be with the older one wants to be, which is so boring. You should so. do a family costume. You could be the Incredibles or, mm, you know, something no. that's a, a team costume. No, no, I no. never dress up. I dress <laughs> them up. I, can't, I just can't get into it. But I vicariously have the thrill. But that's enough for me, Keeks. That's enough. Somebody told me that Captain Marvel resembles me. And yeah. so then I was saying, well, maybe I could be Captain Marvel. And I said, oh, that's a little bit too much work. So maybe I will be Captain Marvel dressing up as Dr. Kiki. Wow, there we that's go. very aspirational. <laughs> you know, what's funny about that is that people say you look like Captain Marvel. People tell me I look like Screech from Saved by the Bell. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations, you win that one. Boom, uh, I'm winning right here. All right, everyone, let us know what you are going to be for Halloween. Do you have any sciencey costumes in mind? But before you reply, let's get down to some business. Check us out on stemcellpodcast.com. That's where you can subscribe to our newsletter and find all the past podcast episodes and other great resources. There are many more. And follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook. These are places where you can tell us what you're going to be for Halloween. Let us know on these places. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher so new episodes will be downloaded to your device. We have a great show today. In addition to the latest science and stem cell news, we have an excellent guest for you. Our guest Today is Dr. Svi Lapido, a stem cell researcher who studies blood stem cells. And he has an interesting study out in cell stem cell. It looks at the influence of circadian rhythms on regulation of these hematopoietic cells. You ready, Dalen? Yes, Keeks. Yes, I can't wait. You know I love the blood. But before we get to that, stem cell technology would like to remind listeners about another one of their weekly science newsletters, Hematopoiesis. That's all I got to say right there. A free science resource that keeps readers up to date on the latest research events, science news, policy, and jobs in the hematology world. You guys have to subscribe to this. After you listen to this guest, I think you're going to be really into the blood, maybe some insight into the whole, you know, Dracula thing and the light dark. I think there's an <laughs> intersection there. Check it out. Subscribe. News. Dot com. That's hematopoiesis, H-E-M, okay, not H-A-E-M, like those Brits like to do it, hematopoiesisnews.com. All right, guys. Kiki, let's get back to the roundup. You want to get started? Oh, yeah. I have so many, so many wonderful things to discuss in the roundup. How about the fact that we are recording in Nobel Prize week? 
the oh, Nobels. I love Nobel Prize. It makes me feel at once so excited, but not like I think they're going to announce my name or anything, but just like excited for science, but at the same time, kind of like, well, that's probably never going to be me. So I'm like a little bit depressed at the same time. <laughs> so it's competing for my emotions, but it's exciting for sure. I find it incredibly exciting this year for one reason. Two women have been named as winners, recipients of the Nobel Prize this year. Last year, no ladies at all in the lineup. This year, they're making up for that lost ground with these substantial discoveries that are being recognized. So without further ado, this week, I will list to you the awards that have been awarded by that royal group of Swedes who hands out this award. The Nobel Prize in Physics for 2018 was awarded for groundbreaking inventions in the field of laser physics. One half of the award was given to Arthur Ashkin for optical tweezers and their application to biological systems. The other half jointly to Gerard Moreau and Donna Strickland for their method of generating high-intensity, ultra-short optical pulses, which these lasers, it just makes very sharp, powerful lasers. Currently, this technique of these sharp laser light that Donna Strickland was part of creating, discovering how to create, is used in eye surgery, like cataract surgery and other surgeries that many people undergo, among other things. The Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry, one half to Francis H. Arnold for the directed evolution of enzymes, and the other half jointly to George P. Smith and Sir Gregory P. Winter for the phage display of peptides and antibodies. These uh, Both of these techniques are chemical techniques, this directed evolution of molecules, but that have biological and health applications. So not just understanding the chemistry of things, but also having very long-reaching effects into the uh, well-being of humans around the world. And the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine was awarded jointly to James P. Allison and Tasuku Hanjo for their discovery of cancer therapy by inhibition of negative immune regulation. Basically, taking off the brakes using the idea of checkpoints in the immune system to allow the body to better fight cancer. It's already being used to great success in the treatment of cancer. Yeah, that's a big deal. That's I actually have a little bit in my roundup about that last part with the immune fighting cancer. It's not a direct offshoot uh, of this, but uh, I mean, it's just when you hear the Nobel all consolidated like that, you really understand how it has affected therapy and medicine today and technology. I mean, all those things are they're in play right now, right, Kiki? Oh, absolutely. All of these things that are, that were awarded, they're being used currently and helping people. It's just fantastic. These are all very groundbreaking, wonderful discoveries and want to congratulate all the Nobel Prize winners this year. Congratulations to all of you. Moving on. Hey, bird flu. Woohoo. Hopefully, yeah. I know, you know, someday someone is going to win the Nobel for a universal flu vaccine. That's going to happen someday. Right now, we still don't have it. And you need to get your annual flu vaccine 
especially if you are around immunocompromised individuals on a regular basis. But this big news, there is a strain of highly pathogenic bird flu (laughs) viruses, the H7N9 and H7N2. They've turned up in ducks in the Fujian province. Now, these two strains of the flu virus replicate easily in ducks, kill them. The H7N9 is particularly deadly to people, killing about half of the people that it has infected. Researchers are reporting in the September 27th cell, host, and microbe this worrisome report because the virus has made the jump to ducks ahead of efforts to eliminate the H7N9 by vaccinating chickens. So H7N9 started getting people sick in 2013. 1,625 people contracted the bird flu strain and 623 have died. Most of those people have come into contact with chickens, so had direct contact with poultry that led to their infection. Initially, the virus killed about a third of the people who caught it, but in 2016, it became more deadly thanks to mutations and started <laughs> killing about 50% of the people that it infected. Woohoo! We love this. Wow. Yeah. So there is a vaccine against the virus. It protects chickens. And because it protects the chickens, the chickens don't get it and can't pass it to people. And so it consequently helps people. According to this study, no cases of H7N9 have been reported since October 2017. Great news. But the ducks, the ducks weren't vaccinated because originally it didn't infect them easily, but now it does. And so the ducks are carrying the disease. So we may see more infections in people because we didn't vaccinate the ducks. The ducks. The ducks. The ducks are every. I heard another one about how the hepatitis is now going from rats to humans. Yes. The hepatitis E. So yeah, it's a scourge. The ducks and the rats and the chickens are coming after us. Absolutely. So we definitely want to be on the lookout for ducks. For ducks, <laughs> no. For these situations where people come into close contact with either poultry species or, in the case of hepatitis, rats and the rat droppings that can potentially pass these viruses. There are close-quarters situations where sanitation isn't up to par. There's situations where, you know, the spread of these things can be perpetuated if we don't start using vaccination and proper sanitation methods. Got to keep working on it to keep that pandemic flu from sticking its head up and, you know, (sighs) pandemic flu whack-a-mole. That's what we're working on right now. Let's talk about killing bacteria, though. There is a new technique that is reported this last week in Nature Biotechnology, the September 24th issue. Researchers, this is very exciting, are using CRISPR-Cas9, the gene editing technology, to edit what are called pathogenicity islands in Staphylococcus aureus bacteria. Now, these pathogenicity islands are the stretches of DNA in the genome of the bacteria that through horizontal gene transfer can jump. They're these jumping genes that jump between bacterial strains, transferring antibiotic resistance and also increased pathogenicity. So strains that at one point were not very pathogenic become more pathogenic due to 
the gain of function through these pathogenicity islands. So the researchers are using CRISPR-Cas9 to attack the pathogenicity islands, turn them into Trojan horses, and replace the toxin-producing genes with other genes that actually lead to death of the bacteria. So it cuts the staph DNA, kills the bacteria, and controls how dangerous the staph bacteria are, making them less prone to causing infection. They are calling these DNA-loaded parcels that are delivered drones, and they tested it in mice. The Cas9 cut DNA and also just the non-cut DNA. Both versions were injected under the skin of mice, and both stopped the animals from developing abscesses. The mice that got the bacterial-killing version, this CRISPR-Cas9 DNA cut, they survived a lethal injection of Staphylococcus aureus in their body cavity. They're saying it's kind of similar to phage therapy, which is an alternative to antibiotics. Patients are given a cocktail of different bacteriophages, which are viruses that target bacteria. And this therapy is beginning to be used more and more often against multidrug-resistant infections, especially throughout Eastern Europe. But this technique, the drone approach, says what the co-author Richard Novick is that it is uh, simpler in that for a phage to kill a cell, it has to reproduce inside the cell, producing more and more copies of itself, the viral copies. But with the drone, all it has to do is get in there, express one gene, and it kills the bacteria. So they're going to be testing this further, see other infections that can be caused by staph bacteria like pneumonia, whether those can be treated, and also move on from mice to humans to see whether this kind of approach works. I have high hopes. We're going to need every yeah. weapon in the arsenal. This, yeah. You know, these antibiotic resistant bacteria coming after us too. It's the ducks, it's the, you know, the rats and the antibiotic resistant bacteria coming a plague. Absolutely. We don't want the plagues. <laughs> I'm like, Meh. you don't sound worried. <laughs> you sound totally sanguine about that. Are you okay with that? I it's live, a big deal. I, I spend a lot of time at home alone in my basement. So <laughs> Just avoiding. So also, right. <laughs> I'm ready for the end of days. I'm stocking <laughs> up here. No, I am. I am excited about these technologies, and it's really neat to see this creative approach to bacterial infections. And I'm looking forward to seeing where these things go. Correct. That's the correct answer. Yes. One thing I am. Uh, I I am excited about it, but I'm a little questioning. How far we should go with is the idea of gene drive. New study out September 24th in Nature Biotechnology reported the successful use of gene drive through this genetic engineering in Anopheles gambiae. These are mosquitoes that led to them not producing any offspring anymore and a crash in these, the laboratory population of the mosquitoes. It didn't affect the reproductive capacity of males, but it did affect the reproductive ability of females. Females that were homozygous, having two copies for a disrupted mosquito gene called double sex, were not able to reproduce. They became intersex and sterile, and so they didn't lay eggs. And this spread through the population in 8 to 12 generations and completely decimated the lab population. The reason researchers are looking at gene drive as a possible 
technique for mosquito population control is mosquitoes are a huge vector for many emerging infectious diseases. And if we can control populations, maybe it will limit the spread of these diseases through the vectors. However, the question now arises, this gene drive worked so successfully in the laboratory population, how successful will it be in the wild? Mosquitoes are known pollinators. They are also food sources for many insect and animal species. So is it okay to decimate their populations in the wild? Is this a philosophical conversation we should be having before taking this from the lab to the real world? That's a tough question, but the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. I feel you there, but I've been ready for this for so long. It's just a personal thing. It's one of those things where it's like, you know, would you kill all the children on earth to save your own child? And I'd be like, well, that's terrible, but I'm afraid I would. You know, it's like that type of thing for me that even though I know it's probably wrong, I'm okay with it and I'm ready for it. Let's go. Yeah. I mean, I think about it in terms of the movement of these mosquitoes into new areas and the spread of their ability to be vectors for various emerging diseases. And so the idea of, you know, releasing this kind of gene drive tool into populations that are spreading. So say these mosquitoes moving northward from Florida into Georgia, North Carolina, and moving more northward, maybe, you know, you release it into the more northish populations mm -hmm. and allow it to spread south. And hopefully there are mutations that kind of get in the way along the way to reduce its effectiveness so it doesn't, you know, destroy all of mosquitoes. <laughs> and there is the question of how well the gene drive will actually work when natural controls are, are taken into account. Will it work with other natural selection effects in play outside of the laboratory? We don't know. There are so many questions. Yeah, you know, it's always a trip about these things, too. It's like what you really don't know is the stuff that you'll never know. Until you'll you never release it. know. Yeah, and you may never even know down yeah. the line. It could be 100 years. It's like, do you know the CAT scan that you had today is going to give you cancer in 40 years? No, you didn't know that, but that's when it happens right now. But you'll never know in the aggregate of all those CAT scans. So in this case, it's the same thing. And I understand the trepidation because it's like, look, we have no idea what's going to happen with this way down the line with the unknown unknowns. So it's new tech. I get it. You got to be careful, but it seems like it's imminent. I mean, I can't imagine that they're going to put this back in the bottle. Yeah. I don't know. It's this question of ecological control. It's not just a flu virus, right? This isn't just a virus. This is an animal that has a place in yeah. an ecosystem. And what are the downstream ecological effects? Mosquitoes kill a lot of people every year. It's us versus them at this point. Uh, but come on, people how far kill does it a go? lot of people. People are killing a lot of animals. Oh, people geez. have the best thing for this earth. And clearly, in this case, we're not worried about the earth as much as we're worried about people. So that's why I feel like it's inevitable. And, you know, I'm behind it. <laughs> Go team humans. <laughs> yes, All right. Yes. All right. Well, that does it for me for the roundup. What did you bring today? I got a few things. First, I have to get out front and acknowledge my own ignorance and lack of imagination. In the last episode, I made a whole big goof about how we're never going to be able to clone the white rhino or using making germ cells from stem cells and all that. Ha ha ha. 
But the joke's on me because that day when we were recording, in fact, by the time people listen to that episode, Mitsunoroi Saitu's group out of Japan, they were making oogonia from induced pluripotent stem cells, human induced pluripotent stem cells. So just a bit of background there, you know, his group initially, actually, and one of his acolytes, postdoc that did a lot of the work in his lab, really have cornered the market on this whole eggs and sperm from stem cells. Their groups collectively, along with other groups, but mostly them, have used mouse embryonic stem cells to generate sperm and eggs all in vitro that were able to give rise to fertile mice. So like they proved the principle in mice. And I think a lot of people, myself included, were saying, well, it's going to be a long way to you know recapitulate that in the human system. And they did in vitro making these primordial germ cell like cells. But I think a lot of people, including me, were saying, well, how are they going to get these to further mature to form these kind of oogonia or true primordial germ cell derivatives? I thought it wasn't going to happen anytime soon, but I uh, was wrong. I am a fool, Kiki. And most of you know that already. <laughs> <laughs> but if you didn't, here's more proof. What they did right. is, is they, and this is why I think it was such a challenge, is the idea was you have to take native somatic gonad tissue. So like there's the germ cells in the ovary and then there's the somatic cells in the ovary. And in this case, we, we never thought they'd be able to get the somatic cells in the ovary that would instruct the germ cells. And what they did in this case is something novel and perhaps not totally crazy. They took mouse embryonic ovarian somatic tissue and they combined it with human primordial germ cell-like cells that they'd gotten from induced pluripotent stem cells. And even cross species, the signals there were able to instruct these germ cell precursors to form a much more mature example of a germ cell or oogonium. And for example, they had this genome-wide DNA methylation that up to this point hadn't been shown, imprint erasure, the extinguishing uh, aberrant DNA methylation that's present in, in the pluripotent stem cell progenitors, and they acquiring this immediate precursor state for meiotic recombination. So this combined with progressive demethylation of an inactive X chromosome and, and some protein markers and expression, everything points towards the fact that we've been able to make these things take the next step. Now, we're not yet at making true oocytes, eggs, but this is a, a real big step in that direction. And I think it's going to generate a lot of controversy vis-a-vis -vis the limitations of using stem cells to make people. It's crazy mm. stuff to think about. So important work. It's hugely important. This is, I mean, it's, it's really pushing the science forward into the realm of science fiction, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Freaky, freaky stuff. I mean, important stuff like, you know, for infertile couples, for same-sex yeah. couples who want to have a child of their own genetic makeup with their partner. Like these are important things, but a more scary type of thing. Like what about the matrix. having a cell line? Well, <laughs> 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 one, of course, because of that saying there's the matrix, which we got to worry about, but also <laughs> just the idea of, of having cells that are grown in culture and then yeah. making that into a person that's going to make people yeah. forever. I mean, wow. So 
got to move slow. In fact, I talked to uh, the, the first author who did a lot of this. He started his own lab. He was the first to make eggs out of mouse and et cetera. Mm-hmm. I talked to him about it when he visited my center. And he told me something that was very interesting. He just had a nature paper. It was a big deal. And I said, wow, you must be having your pick of funding. And he said, no, well, not exactly. Because in Japan, there's such a conservative attitude towards mm-hmm. reproduction, number one. So there's not a lot of interest in funding reproductive medicine. And two, it's very clear that this will never go into clinical therapy. So the idea that we're going to have a lot of translational impetus is not quite there. I'm paraphrasing, of course. I think that captured the idea that this guy who's at the lead and still doing it and doing amazing work has pretty much doomed himself in this field just because he doesn't see it translating. But that doesn't say it doesn't have huge implications for study of germ cell development and tumor formation. So across the board, big deal, good study. And hopefully the Japanese will change their conservative attitudes and start funding reproductive medicine because their population is starting to crash, man. I was going to say, they need to change some attitudes there. All right. That's cool. Just again, want to remind you that I, I called it. It would never happen. So I proved myself wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Full disclosure. Moving on to erythromyeloid progenitors. In honor of our guest today, Dr. Lapido, we have a blood story, of course, but this is a blood story with a twist. So everybody knows, of course, Kiki, that the blood cells come from this primitive hemangioblast or hemogenic endothelium, a cell that can give rise to blood, but also ultimately gives rise to endothelial cells. And endothelial cells, which make up blood vessels, then in turn can branch and proliferate or come from another vascular progenitor type cell to generate more endothelial cells. But what no one knew and everyone assumed was unilateral directionally is that endothelial cells can give rise to blood in this embryonic context and maybe even in adults, but endothelial cells give rise to other endothelial cells and that's it. Blood does not give rise to endothelial cells. Well, this landmark paper in Nature by Christiana Ruhrberg's group shows that that is not the case, that endothelium in two waves, actually, these erythromyeloid progenitors that give rise to red blood cells and the primitive innate immune system, that actually gives rise to endothelial cells early on. These blood cells give rise to endothelium, blood vessel cells early to form the vascular tree in the yolk sac. But then also later on, these EMP, erythromyeloid progenitor blood cells, are disseminated into the embryo proper and colonize a lot of the vasculature in embryonic organs, and that persists into adulthood. So some of your blood vessels that you're walking around with today came from blood cells. And this is, I think, makes sense because what better way to grow than to be able to detach and have a round cell that then you could distribute through your vascular tree at long distance and then recolonize and form more blood vessels. It makes more sense than growing slowly in a branch-like fashion. So an idea that makes sense in retrospect, that, that's revolutionary, even in the moment. I think a lot of people are kind of blown away by this phenomenon that's been documented. I'm blown away. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you're totally blown away. And uh, with that, gap. I'm just going to press right on because I got some rhythm now. I got some momentum with the blood. This is a callback, I think, initially to how I uh, alluded to the new therapies for cancer based on the immune system, the Nobel. This is CAR-T therapy. Okay, so there were two studies back to back in nature medicine that 
are talking about and centered on this CAR T, this adaptive immune approach for cancer, where you pretty much program T cells, your own T cells, take them out, program to attack a tumor, and then put them back in, and they go to work on that tumor. This has had tremendous rates of remission. It's a revolutionary new treatment, but I think a lot of people have been waiting for the other shoe to drop because the remission rates have, like, in a lot of these studies, are 100%. So it seems too good to be true, and I, I think it's not that it's too good to be true, but, of course, there's always an associated back end to any new innovation. And here it seems that there's two mechanisms whereby you can have these revolutionary therapies be overcome by adaptation, genetic mechanisms, adaptive mechanisms of the cancer itself, and also, in another story, an accidental kind of mechanism where it was introduced during the manufacturing process. So we'll start with that briefly. I don't want to get too much into the technique. The bottom line here with both of these, it's easy to, to convey. In this case, they essentially while they were making, taking the patient's T cells and reprogramming them into these killer cells that would go back in and kill a B cell tumor, they accidentally took the same way of reprogramming those T cells and accidentally reprogrammed one of those tumor cells. One leukemic B cell got the same treatment and because it got that treatment, it was ultimately able to evade all those T cells because those T cells didn't want to attack themselves, so they had this built-in defense mechanism. And that one cell ended up clonally roaring back and killing the patient. So this was an adverse consequence of the manufacturing processes. It shows we got to really pay attention to how we go about in the you know, standard operating procedures. This other story... That's huge. Yeah, it's huge, because it shows that, you know... Due diligence is everything here, and we're talking about patients' lives. And this was at UPenn. I don't want to remind anybody, but UPenn was also famous for this travesty in the genetic therapy where this patient who was otherwise fine died, and it set back genetic therapy for about 20, 25 years, yeah, at least a, a decade. Yeah. So I don't think this is you know the same as that, but I think it shows how quick they were to get on top of this is because the echoes of that travesty, I think, are, are still heard. In a similar story, although this is, I think, more daunting, but also at the same time informative, a group from Novartis, so they are leading the way in this treatment. They were the first to get it into trials, and I think they're the first to actually have it. They're selling it. And what they identified is, because they have a broad group of, of patients that have been in these late-stage clinical trials, and what they found is that in some of these patients, as you would imagine if you really thought about it, some of the tumor cells, they ultimately undergo further genetic mutations that are widely extant already in their genome. And these mutations allow them to shed the antigenic target that the whole T cells are locking onto. They're able to shed this CD19 on their surface that allows them to be targeted. And this loss of heterozygosity in these tumor cells leads to their clonal expansion, evasion of the therapy, and then they come roaring back. I think the good news here and the lesson is that you need to have a combinatorial approach where you can have contingencies for this because, of course, you're going to have adaptation, as we've learned from antibiotic-resistance bacteria and many systems. So we just need to have combinatorial therapy. And the good news there is that we have many, many targets on these cancers, and they're still being developed. So I think, ultimately, by having a kind of fail-safe where you use either mild chemotherapy or some ancillary kind of CAR-T 
with a different target that you can avoid these outcomes and have long-lasting remission of these diseases that were totally fatal for these patients. So I think it reinforces the optimism, but it's definitely notes for caution. Yeah, I think people get excited about these kinds of therapies and that's going to be a treatment for everyone. And, but then these nuances and intricacies pop up where, okay, no, we need to watch out for how we program these cells. What populations are we actually affecting? And how can these different targets, these antigenic targets, be used, like you said, in combination to even be more effective to lead to not just remission, but you know, getting rid of a cure. Yeah. Exactly. I think, yeah, it's an arms race. You yeah. know, we, we knew that. Biology is smart. Cancer is brilliant. So we're still working, but I think it's uh, definitely re reason to hope. And on a lighter note, we're going to end. Oh, lightness. All right. Yes, very light. But I don't want to under, you know, underplay it. It's still important. Urine. <laughs> we're ending with urine. All right. Urine-derived cells, to be specific, turns out are a great source of material for generating iPS cells. So it's, it's not really a joke entirely. It's not a joke at all. Although when I saw that the last author was L. David, I thought maybe it was Larry David doing one of his kind of like <laughs> aha pieces like he does in the Times sometimes. But no, this is a legit study and it's important. I'll tell you why. Because we just had the guest on, I think it was a couple weeks ago, who told us about all these UV-related mutations in the skin biopsy, okay? We know that in the blood, there's a lot of clonal mutations. So having alternate sources of material for IPS is a good idea. And, you know, it turns out urine is probably the most non-invasive. And in this study, the way they were able to, to show that it was feasible is they collected urine, spun it down, got the cells that were in there, palleted down, got them into culture, and used mod RNA messenger RNA-based reprogramming method that leaves no genetic footprint. They showed that that was very effective. They could generate bulk iPS cell lines without using any other feeders. So this is all xeno-free, clinically translatable. And they were able to generate all pertinent lineages, hepatocytes, cardiomyocytes. So all jokes aside, you may be giving a urine sample in the future for your you know, regenerative approaches to medicine. And these cells, it seems, are as good as any other cell source, genetically stable, etc. So I started with a laugh, but I'm ending with a grave and somber tone. Urine-derived stem cells. Legit. Urine-derived stem cells. Wow. Disease, you're in trouble. <laughs> We're going to pee all over you. <laughs> Well, no, I think it, it's great. Like you said, this is the least invasive way of getting a source of cells, right? This is one of the urine has been used for monitoring health in healthcare situations for years. You can monitor hormone levels. You can monitor metabolites. You can monitor all sorts of things in the pee. And you don't have to stick a needle in anybody. You don't have to swab anything. It's just here, pee in the cup, right? <laughs> So, That's the truth. yeah. And so to move beyond that, to find populations of cells that can be used for, you know, proliferation, for study, it's great. This is P for personalized medicine. There it is. <laughs> we put the P in personalized. <laughs> That's so good, Kiki. I think you got to call 
L. Davis, you go into business. Hey, you know, I, I, just, I have I, your I have your motto, your your brand identity. Here we go. To go back, another <laughs> callback to the first story. You know, all the press was freaking out about because if you could generate eggs, you could then get George Clooney's hair and make an egg from it or a sperm from it and use that to make George Clooney's baby. But now, if you think about it in the context of the pee thing, it's like a whole other level. You can't be peeing anywhere anymore. No peeing on the street, for sure. Watch out, Chris Brown. Watch out, Chris Brown. You are going to be having babies, more babies than you already have, brother. That's right. All right. Oh, my goodness. Oh, the things, the things that that we think of and the ways that the mind works. Ha! (laughs) Patterns, people. This was a fun, a fun way to end it. There's some big news out there. I just love the strides that stem cell research is taking. It just, I mean, it just sound, it just feels like there are huge discoveries like happening all the time now. Push, right now, push right now, pushing the science forward. Nobel prizes all around. <laughs> some <laughs> someday, if they get a Nobel prize for biology at some point, I guess. But moving on, it is time for our interview. But before we get there, studying mouse hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells means knowing what you're working with. Get help phenotyping over 25 stem and progenitor cell subtypes with our new wall chart, mouse HSPC phenotypes and frequencies. Visit stemcell.com slash mouse pheno, spelled M-O-U-S-E-P-H-E-N-O. Stemcell.com slash mousepheno to request your copy now. You can do that. You can get your own copy for free. It'll be great. Wall chart to help you in your work. All right. So now our interview. Our guest today is Dr. Svi Lapidot. Dr. Lapidot is a professor, incumbent of the Edith Arnoff Stein Professorial Chair in Stem Cell Research in the Department of Immunology and head of the Weizmann Stem Cell Institute at the Weizmann Institute of Science. Dr. Lapido's lab investigates the regulation of normal and leukemic human blood forming or hematopoietic stem cells by the brain-bone-blood triad in transplanted and immune-deficient mice. Their group aims to decipher molecular mechanisms that govern stem cell regulation. And here to talk about his work and latest publication in Cell Stem Cell is Dr. Svi Lapidot. Thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. It is wonderful to get to speak with you. Could you give us a little bit more background as to what you study and the focus of your lab? I'll go back in history. I did my PhD studies with uh, Yai Reisner, who was the first to do T-cell depleted bone marrow transplantation for immune deficient bubble children in Sloan Kettering Memorial in New York. And he was the first to rescue them with haploidentical stem cells from one of their parents in the early 60s. And that was something that impressed me very much. And we continued to work on T-cell depleted stem cell transplantation in mouse models, in functional preclinical mouse models, and how with the mega dose you can overcome uh, graft resistance. And later on, he implemented these uh, protocols for uh, rescuing uh, survivors of the Chernobyl nuclear accident in, in Russia including one of the firefighters, uh, Tomozin. 
Later on, I saw that there was the immune-deficient mouse models for human stem cells. There were three groups in parallel, the group of Irv Wiseman in Stanford and John Dick in Toronto. And I was fascinated by this functional preclinical model for human stem cells. And uh, I geared with John Dick in Toronto because the model was based on conventional bone marrow transplantation, sublethal irradiation to the recipient immune-deficient mice, IV uh, injection of the uh, human stem cells, and later on their engraftment and repopulation. And I joined in early days when there were a lot of uh, uh, technical problems, which we managed to overcome. So in 92, we had a nice science paper, which was the first to show high-level multi-lineage lymphoid and myeloid uh, human engraftment in these immune-deficient skid mice, which was a, a big achievement at the time. And we use this model uh, later on to uh, identify human skid leukemia-initiating cells, we called them then. And we had a very nice uh, nature paper in 94 about these skid leukemia-initiating cells in the peripheral blood of newly diagnosed human AML uh, patients. And now this was first evidence for a human cancer stem cell. And this paper has a few thousand uh, citations. And then in 94, when I came back to the Weizmann Institute, I was very much interested, and our group was interested, how do the human stem cells reach the mouse bone marrow? What are the signaling cascades which attract them, like chemoattractant, chemokines, etc.? And then in 99, we had a, another breakthrough paper about the chemokine 6CL12, or as it's also called SDF1, and its major receptor 6CR4, which is essential for human stem cell homing and repopulation in immune-deficient mice. And that led to more preclinical models about how stem cells are mobilized clinically with the GCSF for a, a transplantation. And later on, we dwelled on how osteoclast, osteoblast bone turnover is like a biological clock which regulates uh, stem cell migration and development. And then the nervous system where we found that human hematopoietic stem cells functionally express receptors for dopamine and for uh, norepinephrine beta-2 uh, receptors. And later on, we had work on the coagulation uh, system and the blood bone marrow barrier. And then very recently, just today, it's published in, in hard copy in Cell Stem Cells about the onset of light and darkness, which regulates stem cell uh, migration and development. Wow. Dr. Lapidote, I'm really glad that you just went through that because I was going to do a more modest introduction just because I didn't have the synthesis that you're capable of. But I think what's lost in there really, and I'm really truly glad that you went through that because I think what's lost in there in our audience is that this is in the phase of therapeutic development where the stem cell therapy that is really the gold standard has really evolved to the place it is today, where it's, it's disseminated widely in multiple therapies. Could you just a bit more briefly, so we can get to all the other questions, just give us an idea about how all those studies, which are people, I think, appreciate how landmark all each and every one of those were, how those have kind of shaped the therapeutic landscape today. I'm focusing on our work, but there are many very, very important uh, contributions by others and some even uh, before us. And uh, it's important to emphasize that the blood-forming hematopoietic stem cells 
are the only uh, stem cells in the clinic already from the 50s and over a million people have benefited from a, a bone marrow transplantation. And the reason that these are the only stem cells in the clinic at the moment is that you just need to uh, infuse these cells into the blood circulation. They find their way home on their own. This is something very important. And they can repopulate the bone marrow. This is something which is part of our host immunity because our immune system needs to patrol uh, the body, distinguish between self and foreign, and eradicate what is not needed and, and is uh, dangerous for us. I can say that our work from 1999, published in, in Science, which was also the first to show secondary repopulation in immune deficient mice with human stem cells, that we showed that 6CR4 signaling is essential for bone marrow homing and, and engraftment, and later on also for stem cell uh, mobilization. And there are preliminary uh, results that uh, mobilization for autologous transplantation, the levels of uh, migration to a gradient of 6CL12 in vitro, they correlate with the in vivo uh, engraftment. These things take time to develop, but we hope that our preliminary results with these experimental preclinical models, both with human and with mouse uh, stem cells, will lead eventually to uh, improve uh, treatment and transplantation uh, protocols. But clinical stem cell transplantation is not the entire story. This is a major clinical uh, improvement. As you know, aging is associated with uh, reduced host immunity, anemia, and also uh, uh, osteoporosis. And we think the, the three are, are linked uh, together. And we hope that our recent uh, publication, which just came out, and this is everything is very preliminary and mostly with the mouse stem cells. Only one experiment was done with human stem cells. We hope that anti-aging and fighting this uh, osteoporosis, uh, reduced host immunity and anemia can be attenuated or maybe even uh, reversed by our, our new discoveries. But this is all our hopes and still needs to be proven. And that's a perfect segue into your most recent study on uh, the circadian aspects of these hematopoietic cells and how they're regulated. I am fascinated in this. I've read lots of work, people recommending, research recommending that circadian cycles are important to health, reducing inflammation, to combating cancer, that circadian rhythms are important. So what did you find? How did you do your study and what did you find? And tie it back to these diseases of aging that you just mentioned, please. Yeah, this is an excellent question. So first of all, our work is in the footsteps of elegant work done by Simone Mendes Ferrer and Paul Frenet at the time in Mount Sinai in New York. And they found that daylight increases uh, norepinephrine uh, signaling in the bone marrow reduced levels of 6CL12, upregulation of 6CL4, and uh, increased release of stem cells into the circulation at uh, 11 a.m. In the footsteps of that study, we looked throughout the day and night, and we thought if stem cells go out during the day, then the bone marrow reservoir of immature and maturing stem and progenitor cells need somehow to be replenished, either by cell cycle or by other means. So we started uh, looking uh, carefully at, at light and darkness uh, onset and uh, what happens in the bone marrow during the different time sets. 
Now, all living creatures and plants are regulated by uh, light and darkness, and we have to uh, adapt to changing time zones when we fly and suffer from uh, jet lag, uh, etc. So what we found, uh, and this was uh, unexpected and surprising to us, that tumor necrosis factor, TNF, which is mostly associated with inflammatory uh, responses, infections, malignancies, etc., also has a physiological role because one hour after light onset, which is six o'clock in our uh, animal colony, so at seven o'clock, we see a, a transient increase in reactive oxygen species, which is due to norepinephrine and TNF uh, secretion in the bone marrow. And uh, more interestingly, also one hour after termination of light, so it's 6 p.m., we also see at 7 p.m. another transient increase in uh, norepinephrine and TNF, more uh, uh, modest. And as you know, darkness is not a signaling and has no uh, receptor. But perhaps during daytime, light induces signaling cascades, which inhibit some of the signaling cascades which take place during darkness which can then uh, be activated. And basically what we found that during the morning, this transient increase in norepinephrine and TNF leads to transient elevation in reactive oxygen species in hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells, inducing their migration and development of common lymphoid and common myeloid cells and aggress to the circulation at 11 a.m. to replenish the blood with new cells, which all have a finite lifespan. So we need Billion of blood cells on a daily basis, over 1 million blood cells per second are, are generated in the adult uh, bone marrow. And so, of course, there must be some compensatory system to replenish not only the blood during the day, but the reservoir in the bone marrow. And what we found is that during the night, darkness hormone uh, melatonin, which is produced in the pineal gland, and there's some preliminary results that it's also produced in the bone marrow, including human bone marrow, by stroma cells and by myeloid cells. It also regulates stem and progenitor cells to repopulate and replenish the reservoir, not necessarily by cell cycle, not only by cell cycle, only a small a minority of stem cells proliferate and divide at night, but simply by upregulation of molecules which are involved with stem cell phenotype and function, like CD150 and CKIT and reducing reactive oxygen species levels. So if you take cells during the night and you transplant them, they have higher repopulation than when you take cells during the day. And this was very tedious for us to begin with, working day and night and shifts and everything. But eventually we had a new scientist recruited to our institute that worked on clock genes and he established an upside down room where night occurs during the day. So now we could take cells from the night during the day and transplant them into mice and compare them to cells during the, the day. And we saw that the night cells have a much higher uh, advantage in their long-term repopulation potential, while the day cells have an advantage in differentiation and replenishing uh, the blood. And we think that uh, looking at these light and uh, darkness onset signals, might have impact on, on clinical stem cell transplantation protocols. But perhaps equally important, and here we have only preliminary results from a follow-up study, and there are also preliminary results from the past. In Harvard, there's an elegant uh, study from the early 60s 
where they start uh, the day in their animal colony at nine o'clock and they find at 10 o'clock in the morning, the highest levels of osteoclasts in the bone marrow. And osteoclasts are involved in bone turnover. Osteoclasts, osteoblast interaction, degrade the old osteoblasts and generate new bone. And we think that these two processes are synchronized, that bone turnover, host immunity, and new blood production are all uh, synchronized by the same mechanism because we see that the light and darkness onset that we saw for uh, blood-forming hematopoietic stem cells also regulate uh, bone-forming stem and uh, progenitor cells. And uh, there's a recent uh, study by the group of Toshio Suda from Japan showing that calcium regulates hematopoietic stem cells and uh, regulates their cell cycle. And hematopoietic stem cells have low levels of calcium in order to remain undifferentiated. There's a preliminary results also from a group here in, in the States, in uh, Columbia University, uh, also showing that stem cells, in order to remain undifferentiated, they need to maintain low levels of calcium. And as you know, of course, osteoclast osteoblast interactions generate high release of, of calcium, which is important for stem cell migration and development. So we think that osteoclast osteoblast interactions are like biological clock which moves slowly during steady state to generate new blood on demand, but is accelerated due to infections, inflammation, etc., where it is well known that there's high levels of bone turnover in response to bacterial and other infections, viruses and others. I mean, just circling back to this, to your specific results, I find it really fascinating about the dynamic there and the temptation, I think, is to project maybe human habits onto these mice. Like, oh, you know, you wake up in the morning, you want to have your differentiated cells out there to deal with a tough day. And then when you go to sleep at night, you want to replenish your stem cells. But is there an element of like, um, or one, is there any like logic to that? Or is there any reality to that speculation? And two, does the nocturnal, you know, mice being nocturnal, would you expect with a diurnal animal that you would see the reverse phenomenon? Do you have any speculation on that? This is a, an excellent question. So first of all, the group in Columbia, New York, is headed by uh, Hans Nook. And uh, of course, mice are nocturnal and we uh, are active during the day. But melatonin is the dark hormone both in mice and in humans. While for mature leukocytes, there's an elegant study in blood by a group in uh, Korea showing that the release of the mature cells between mice and humans take place in different times, including in immune deficient mice transplanted with the human stem and progenitor cells. We have very preliminary results together with the a group of John Dick in Toronto, my good friend and postdoc mentor, and he developed the best assays currently for normal and leukemic human stem cells and identifying the markers of human stem cells. So we asked them also to give melatonin at six o'clock when light is initiated in their colony and to look at, at 11 a.m. And they found exactly the same as we found, although the results are, are preliminary, we saw an increase in, in long-term repopulating hematopoietic mouse stem cells based on the SLAM marker, CD150, reduced levels of membrane-bound circuit, and more importantly, higher levels of short-term and of long-term repopulating hematopoietic stem cells. And he saw just by cell surface markers, 
similar results with the, the human stem cells. There's also an old uh, publication by the group of uh, Maestroni in Switzerland showing that both mouse bone-forming stromal stem and progenitor cells, as well as human stromal stem and progenitor cells in vitro, secrete melatonin. And as we see that the human stem cells also respond to uh, melatonin uh, stimulation. So while the results are very preliminary, we have room for optimism that what we found with mice is also relevant for human stem cells, both blood forming and bone forming. But again, I need to caution, this is very uh, preliminary. We're only now beginning to look at, at the bone uh, forming uh, stromal stem and progenitor uh, cells, but we have interesting preliminary results which give us some room of optimism. What does the timing of all this mean for therapeutic interventions, like taking this to populations of proliferating hematopoietic stem cells that could be used in people. I'm, I'm just thinking down the road therapeutically. What does the this circadian timing, what implications does it have? Yeah, this is an excellent question. And, and I think that I would sharpen your question, not necessarily timing, but light versus uh, darkness. There's an old uh, study from the uh, early 60s where they mimicked bacterial uh, infection in mice. And they looked during the day and during the night. And when they looked in the afternoon, more than 90% of the mice died at four o'clock in the afternoon when the levels of steroids are at their peak. And when they looked at midnight with the same treatment, most of the mice survived, over 90%. So we repeated this experiment and we have uh, preliminary results with lipopolysaccharides, which mimic bacterial uh, gram-negative uh, infection. And we also see different immune responses at night versus uh, the day. So we are thinking, but of course, these are only thoughts. We haven't looked clinically at all at sepsis uh, patients. And we think maybe keeping them at, in the dark. So it's not enough that you admit them at night to the hospital. If there's going to be light there, it, it won't help. But keeping them in the dark might do something to uh, improve their condition. So I think manipulating these light and darkness signaling cascades, and of course, this is very important, first of all, to decipher these signaling cascades, because we think during daylight, norepinephrine and, and TNF metabolically program the blood-forming stem cells for migration and development, while at night, melatonin, and we think prostaglandin E2, which is uh, secreted by macrophage and monocytes, reprogram them again to be in an undifferentiated form. So we need to find out what are these epigenetic metabolic programming and reprogramming so that eventually one day, and this is not close at all, we can take human core blood stem and progenitor cells and treat them in vitro with this programming and reprogramming in order to improve their homing and repopulation, in order to shorten the time to neutrophil, platelet, and hemoglobin uh, production. So we are hoping for that in the future. This will not come necessarily from our lab. We are a, a small lab working mostly with mice, but we think this is the direction where things are going to move forward, not only for the blood-forming stem cells, equally important for the uh, bone-forming uh, stem cells, as we discussed, osteoporosis, which is one of the hallmarks of aging, in particular for women uh, after menopause, 
and I haven't uh, uh, discussed the blood endothelial uh, uh, barrier because there are some thoughts and some preliminary results that the first domino effect which leads to osteoporosis is impairment of blood vessels and that leads to a domino effect where uh, osteoblast, osteoclast uh, interactions are hampered, hematopoietic blood forming stem cells are, are hampered, and the uh, elegant work by the group of Ralph Adams in Max Planck in Munster in Germany, he showed that at least in mice he can reverse these phenotypes, but of course this is a very long way for uh, reversing this situation in aging uh, people. Well, one thing, when you were talking about the uh, mouse experiment with the differential outcome versus at midnight versus during the day, it suggests that perhaps every single experiment done in the field needs to be redone at a standard time point. Would you say that that's a real, that we need to reframe some of the results we've seen and maybe kind of reassess some of the negative and or positive results that we've had of, of therapeutic or applications with potential for therapeutic? I think that's a, a, a very uh, important comment. We have to be more exact and, and precise, and timing is also important because we see that the blood-forming stem cells and their progeny have different phenotype and different function during the day versus during the night. And we already know that in the afternoon, as I said, for the immune system, the levels of steroid cortisol in humans and corticosterone in mice are at their highest levels, and they impact. There are already some uh, preliminary results with human uh, cancer patients. For example, for human uh, breast cancer patients, night shifts are a, a risk factor for them. It's a low risk factor, but still it's a risk factor. So I think timing uh, will become more and more important. And even to sharpen that, it's not necessarily only the timing, it's the light versus the darkness, which has the opposite impact. I'm wondering, as we move forward, I mean, as a woman who's probably looking forward to osteoporosis, I hope not. But the idea of melatonin, I mean, is this something that could be an intervention to help to change the stem cell levels as people age, is, as opposed to actually transplanting stem cells? This is a very uh, good question, and the good news is that melatonin can be bought over the counter in the States. You don't even need a, a, a prescription for that. There are three different doses, and I think dosing is uh, important, but also timing and context is uh, important because melatonin has uh, pleiotropic uh, results, both on blood and bone-forming sepsis, but on other types uh, uh, of cells as well. And it's important if it's uh, taken before or uh, after inflammatory uh, responses. And melatonin is not the only important uh, new player here. TNF, which was considered usually to be involved only in alarm situations, malignancies, uh, inflammation. Actually, there's an elegant study by David Trevor in the uh, zebrafish that the TNF is essential for initiation of hematopoiesis and uh, we find that it has roles during the day and during the night and we have TNF knockout mice and they are not blind, but they're indifferent to the day and night uh, it changes. So we think that there will be new players here which will be uh, able to help, 
But again, the dosing and, and the context is very important. And we think that maybe even right now, people who are taking melatonin to fight jet lag might have additional unexpected benefits. But of course, it's, it's only a guess and we haven't looked at that. I would love to see some kind of, you know, beyond anecdotal, some kind of study there. I mean, people taking melatonin for jet lag, for shift work. I mean, there are lots of people, nurses and others who are involved in studies already. It would be so neat to take advantage of that. So, Dr. Lapido, you know, we're reaching the end of the interview and we have these three questions, one of three questions that we ask our guests at the end. And I, I don't know if, Keek, I hope you're okay with this, but I, just because I have a story to tell about a It's all major, about you, Dalen. <laughs> it's all about me after all. But it's, uh, one of the questions is, what's your greatest science blunder? And I just wanted to set it up by speaking of my greatest, probably, Israel blunder when I was visiting there. A time many years ago, I was staying with a friend for a month in Jerusalem, and then I wanted to travel to Egypt for a week. And so he gave me, because he had a friend in Egypt, he had sunglasses that his friend had left with him. So he gave me the sunglasses to take there and to look him up. And so when I get to El Al, I went and they said to, as they say to everybody, has anyone given you anything to, <laughs> to take with you to Egypt with you today, sir? And I thought, of course, I'm in Israel. I better fess up. So I said, yes, sir, I, there's these sunglasses. And I was in detention for six hours, Dr. Lapido. <laughs> so my blunder in Israel was telling the truth. Would you share with us your greatest science blunder, perhaps? First of all, I'll, I'll comment about your uh, El Al with a counter uh, story. In El Al, they have excellent security and maybe sometimes excessive, but there are people who are armed and, and guard the door to the pilot's cockpit. So. If this type of uh, security was implemented in the States, 9-11 would have never happened. This is important to know, regardless of, of six hours uh, in, in detention. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Fair uh, enough. It wasn't a big deal. I had nowhere to be, quite honestly. I, I had a little bit of fun with it, so I'm not really complaining. Yeah. The problem with the science that we are always very uh, frustrated, we never have the, the full picture and the full story. The uh, German philosopher Kant says that in life we're very frustrated because we never have the full story. I know what I think. I don't know what you think or what the Kika is thinking. Uh, I can see outside. I cannot see uh, inside. I can see forward. I cannot see uh, backwards. And this leads to many uh, uh, misunderstandings. But in science, it's like in court, the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. The ocean of science is very democratic. Anybody can say whatever he wants. And if what he says is true and will stand the test of time, which is the, the really crucially important test, then he will be fine. And if what he says is wrong, even naively wrong, it will not test the, the test of time and things will sink. But people have a local patriotic angles and when they say something, even in, in, in good faith, and that turns out to be not the case or not exactly the case, many times they're not flexible enough to take a U-turn. And my scientific blunders came from saying things which are uh, uh, unexpected. And I learned that coming with that is left-hand complement of disbelief. Because if you say something and it's obvious, so who cares what's important? But if you say something which is unexpected and people didn't think about it before outside the, the box, then they challenge you and sometimes they publish uh, against you. 
So you were detained for six hours. I had papers published against us when I was running for tenure. This was not, this was not fun. But we can laugh about it in retrospect. I got the tenure. We rebutted and, and sent our own version. And like I said, the truth always rises to the surface. And nowadays, even faster than before. But this situation where people have different uh, opinions, they need to understand that even if somebody says something which is opposite to yours, he can be right uh, as well. That's a great point. And I guess the moral for me is, was I detained or was I entertained? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's definitely a story that you get to tell people now. So you entertain others with your detaining. I love the idea, you know, science is it is really a democratic endeavor with the ideas. Anybody can put an idea out there, put it up to the vote, and evidence will eventually vote those ideas that matter, that are true up to the top. So thank you so much for joining us today. It's just been wonderful speaking with you. Oh, it's my pleasure. And in science, you get to meet interesting people from all over the scientific world who have mutual interests. And like the Dalai Lama said, we have more in common than things setting us uh, apart. And coming back to your six hours in Israel, it was included in the price. You didn't pay extra for it. So. <laughs> <laughs> no need to worry for it. And you can tell your grandchildren new stories. <laughs> very true. Very true. Yeah. It was my honor and my pleasure. Thank you very much to both of you. Thank you so much. And we have our different ideas sometimes, and it just makes conversation more interesting, makes life more interesting to have things to debate. That's what TV is all about. If you don't insult the other guy, if you agree with him, <laughs> there's going to be zero ratings. <laughs> all right. Well, have a wonderful evening, everyone out there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Stem Cell Podcast. Be sure to send us your thoughts and questions on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email info at stemcellpodcast.com. Don't forget to take our survey at stemcellpodcast.com. Tell us what you think about the podcast and be sure to tune in for our next episode in two weeks time. Dr. Lapidote, Dalen, this concludes episode 127 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Thank you for another great show. Thank you very much. Good night. Shalom. And hope to see you again in Israel. (laughs) Take care. Take care.